0: Hi, everyone. This is Elise, the Managing Director of Pantsuit Politics. Both of our regular episodes this week focused on the opioid crisis and its ripple effect throughout our society. Our conversations about this issue are not just limited to the main show. We also released an episode on Beth's premium show, More to Say, this week, diving even deeper into the ways that opioids touch different parts of our culture. That's what you're about to hear. We wanted to share this normally paywalled content here with you because it sets up the foundation for the conversations on the main show so well. If you like hearing this and are interested in learning more about becoming a member of our premium community and getting content like this multiple times a week, you can find more information in our show notes. This content is available through both Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. Thank you so much for listening. You'll hear the rest of Sarah and Beth's conversation about opioids on the regular show tomorrow.
1: Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at Ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's Ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. A quick programming note before we get started. Sarah and I separately, came to the conclusion that we should talk about drugs this week on the podcast. Was kind of surprising, I think, to both of us. This is where our minds went, given all the things going on in the news. But I had already put together this more to say when I learned that she was thinking about two segments on the show this week on the opioid and fentanyl crises. And so consider this more to say a little bit of a prologue to a discussion that's gonna continue here all week. And I'm really glad about that because as hard as these issues are, they deserve our focus. We've been talking about talking about them for a long time. I'm glad that we're here and I look forward to continuing the conversation with Sarah and with all of you. I practice yin yoga almost every day. In is a slow practice where you introduce gentle stress to facilitate health in the connective tissues in the body, and you hold the poses for several minutes. So it can be more mentally challenging than physically challenging sometimes. It's a quiet and patient practice. I've learned from it that if something in my hip hurts, it's probably related to something going on in my calves and in my jaw and probably in my feelings or at least my stress level. And sometimes the floor feels too hard and I need a pillow under my knees or the room feels too cold and I need a blanket over my back. The point is, when you are getting into the deep work of the body's infrastructure and particularly into the deep work of pain in that infrastructure, everything matters. Everything contributes. Everything distracts. Everything is connected. So I've been thinking about yin yoga while reading about the opioid epidemic. Drugs have always been a hard problem since the days that I was learning to just say no or dare to stay off them, and opioids seem exponentially harder. So what are we talking about here? Opioids refer to a class of drugs used to reduce pain by binding to receptors on nerve cells throughout the body. It's a big umbrella. It includes legal drugs like OxyContin and Vicodin, codeine, morphine, and many others and it includes illegal drugs like heroin and fentanyl. A million things are true at one time about opioids. Some of us desperately need forms of these drugs at particularly vulnerable and agonizing moments in our lives. And they are highly addictive and have killed so many people. That's what drew me to read American Cartel, which is subtitled Inside the Battle to Bring Down the Opioid Industry. It was written by Scott Hyam and Sari Horwitz, their Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporters. The book published in July 2022. I loved that they dedicated the book to the victims and their families, and I also got really hooked in even before the numbered pages began because they included a cast of characters that had the names and titles of people from the DEA and the DOJ, members of Congress, manufacturers, distributors, pharmacies, it was just clear to me from the outset that this book was not going to just detail the ways in which the Sackler family is ruinously greedy. True as that is. It was going to take a broader perspective on this crisis that has its tentacles in everything and everything in its tentacles. The book describes a journey of belief about addiction that's still in progress. We've had to learn that addiction to opioids is as likely to begin with a back injury as with an emotional crisis. And many of the thousands of people who've died from opioid addiction have been as likely to get their pills from a name-brand pharmacy as a black market dealer. As lawyers and DEA agents and the authors of this and other books on the subject have unraveled the threads of this crisis, They found, in Chaim and Horwitz's words, a horrifying panorama of corporate greed and political cowardice. The prologue tells us that over the last 20 years, 500,000 Americans have died from opioids, and that's more than the number of people we lost during World War II. The death toll keeps rising and taking new forms, and the corporations that comprise the opioid industry have behaved less like normal corporations and more like a cartel. So a cartel is a cooperative arrangement between organizations or companies, usually to keep prices high and to limit competition. If you're thinking about the pharmaceutical industry, you might start by looking at distributors who receive products from manufacturers and then transport them to pharmacies. In the U.S., three distributors, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson, transport 95% of all pharmaceuticals. And they were in a position to start seeing the epidemic take shape as, for example... Online pharmacies in Tampa ordered 2 million pills in an 11 day period in the fall of 2005. You might also look at the manufacturers of opioids like Cephalon. Chapter 2 of the book describes a conference that took place in Dallas in 2007, at which Cephalon used a spoof of Austin Powers' Dr. Evil to roll out its new fentanyl tablet. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, so not made from the plant, the opium plant. That's 50 times more powerful than heroin. It's used for cancer pain and anesthesia. Dr. Evil in this spoof complained about the childproof packaging of the new tablet called Fentora, before encouraging sales reps to market the drug for lower back pain, a massive expansion of what this drug had been used for. Dr. Evil said, tell the street a billion in sales this year. Purdue Pharma is, of course, the most infamous of the manufacturers, having introduced OxyContin in 1996 with the slogan, the one to start with and the one to stay with. Purdue aggressively sold the idea that too many people were suffering with needless pain and that less than 1% of people prescribed opioids became addicted. It was, as the authors of American Cartel describe it, a false statistic that would launch a thousand marketing campaigns. This stat, this less than 1% become addicted idea, was taken from a one-paragraph letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine written in 1980. It was just a note, 104 words, written by a physician as an observation about patients he had treated. It was not a study. It was not peer-reviewed. It was not subjected to any kind of scientific rigor. And the author of that note is mortified that his letter has been used by drug companies, and media and politicians and doctors over and over to justify the widespread prescription of opioids for routine medical issues. But the marketing push was successful, so successful that in 2001, a nonprofit organization that works with healthcare providers urged the medical community to consider pain as the fifth vital sign. And that's why we're often asked to rate our pain on a scale of one to 10. And here's where we have to pause here again to think about how a lot of things are true at once. I have no doubt that too many patients, especially women, suffered needlessly before a larger conversation opened up about pain. A lot of people were not listened to. They weren't believed. A more liberal use of opioids has probably saved many people from tremendous suffering. And it has gone too far for unconscionable reasons at terrible cost. And we know from newer lawsuits and newer studies that a lot of people are still not believed about their pain. If you are not white, you are less likely to be prescribed opioids. So a lot of our major sins are wrapped up in the way that opioids have rolled out across the population. As the Drug Enforcement Agency started seeing the costs of millions of pills flowing into small communities, the drug manufacturers and distributors worked a really comprehensive strategy. They used patient advocacy groups in a PR campaign to promote the drugs. They used members of Congress to squeeze the DEA to limit its enforcement initiatives. They used those same members of Congress to treat them favorably in hearings and write laws that were favorable to them that limited their liability. And inside the companies, many executives had attitudes about pain and profit that were just despicable. There's an example in the book about a national salesman for Mallinckrodt, Victor Borelli, comparing pain pills to Doritos when shipping 1,200 bottles of oxycodone tablets to a Cincinnati distributor. He wrote in an email, keep eating, we'll make more. Executives at Amerisource Bergen forwarded around an email spoofing the Beverly Hillbillies theme song. The lyrics are so stunning that I just have to read them to you. Come and listen to a story about a man named Jed. Poor mountaineer barely kept his habit fed. Then one day he was looking at some tube and saw that Florida had a lax attitude, about pills that is, hillbilly heroin, OC. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a-drivin' south. Kinfolk said, Jed, don't put too many in your mouth. Said, sunny Florida is the place you ought to be, so they load up the truck and drove speedily, south that is pain clinics, cash and carry, a bevy of pillbillies. That was in 2001, a year in which nearly 16,000 people died from prescription opioid overdoses. The book is infuriating. It is also illuminating. You see how easily the Obama Department of Justice was intimidated by members of Congress who were lobbied by the industry. You see how those members of Congress People like Sheldon Whitehouse and Marsha Blackburn and Tom Marino were coming from different angles. The economic interests of their states for some of them, a general distrust of government for others, a failure in almost all of them to appreciate the significance of acquiescing to the industry. You see how, even in the face of mountains of evidence, many manufacturers and distributors have escaped liability in courts— There's always someone else to blame, a pharmacy, a doctor, law enforcement, the people who complained about pain in the first place. Because these drugs have legitimate uses, this is an industry that can't just be shut down or shut off at any particular point. Someone somewhere will always need these pills, which makes this problem so layered and thorny. An American cartel does an excellent job pulling many of these pieces together. This week, I read a piece from Axios that added another element, foreign policy. Now that the opioid crisis is better exposed and understood, it's harder to get and fill prescriptions for these drugs. There are a lot more checkpoints in the system, and that's both annoying at times and overall a tremendous public good. But all the people who became addicted over the last 20 years haven't been freed of that addiction through litigation and settlements and exposés and many of them have turned to heroin and fentanyl in the absence of the pills that were flowing so freely for so many years. The DEA now says that fentanyl is the single deadliest drug threat the nation has ever encountered. It's cheap to produce, and it is so addictive that traffickers are really incentivized to lace other products with it. A lot of people who take fentanyl did not realize it was part of the drug they were using. In 2021, 70,000 people died of overdoses involving synthetic opioids. And the only real limitation on producing those synthetic opioids is the availability of precursor chemicals. These chemicals needed to manufacture them come almost entirely from China. And they are shipped to Mexico for production and then smuggled into the U.S. primarily by two powerful cartels. And here's the foreign policy angle. Our relationship with China has steadily deteriorated over the past few years, especially since former Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan. After that visit, China formally severed coordination on narcotics. Mexico is not cooperating much with us either. Mexico's president has denied that Mexicans produce fentanyl and blamed Americans, quote, lack of hugs and the disintegration of families for our epidemic. He did send members of his security cabinet to Washington this past week to discuss the issue, and he did write to Xi Jinping asking for help controlling shipments of fentanyl. But we have a lot of antagonism going on between our government and the governments of China and Mexico right now. We have Republican members of Congress calling to designate these two major cartels who smuggle fentanyl into the U.S. as terrorist organizations so that we can send our military after them, and that would almost certainly further jeopardize the limited cooperation we're getting from Mexico on this topic. So I find myself thinking again about yin yoga and how everything is connected. This is in many ways the nature of pain. Wherever and however it starts, once it's there, it's made up of everything and it becomes a part of everything. It's hard to look at almost any major policy issue in the U.S. Foreign policy, homelessness, poverty, loneliness, life expectancy, you name it without seeing the impact of the opioid epidemic. And it's hard to look at the opioid epidemic without seeing our most systemic forces at play. Unchecked capitalism, racism, sexism, greed, corruption, the disintegration of trust in and among public officials. It's all there, and it's all here. You learn by practicing yin yoga that pain is addressed in a huge variety of ways over a long period of time. And the first step in addressing pain in yin yoga is paying attention to it even when you don't want to observation is an important step to facilitate change. And that feels really true to me with this crisis. I know this has been a very depressing episode. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that the work of these reporters and so many lawyers and journalists and healthcare professionals and public servants and family members, they have changed things in a major way. We're able to count how many lives are lost to the epidemic. We aren't able to count how many lives are saved by these changes. We just have to know it's a big number that so many people have worked to save. And as hard as it is to spend time on this, we know that's how we deal with it. Representative David Trone of Maryland co-chairs a bipartisan commission on fentanyl trafficking. He recently told NPR that the only chance we have against fentanyl is education, treatment, and prevention at home. So we have to pay attention. And I thank you very much for hanging with me through this. And if you want to know more, I highly recommend American Cartel.